All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will be with us, Lord. Help us to gain insight and understanding into ourselves today, and also insight and understanding into you and how you would speak to us if we would listen. Help us to be listeners in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 10 is where I want to start today. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So what follows after this exchange in Luke 10 is the story that we call the Good Samaritan. It's a great story, and it's a powerful lesson, but in and of itself has very little to do with what we need to talk about today. Yet since we're here, here's your bonus reminder. Be a neighbor. Don't ever read that text without reminding people to be a neighbor. You see, the point of the story Jesus tells is an illustration of how to read the second great commandment, be a neighbor. So we're continuing in our Banner Year series, and we're considering texts from the Bible in which banners are mentioned. And for the record, there are exactly zero banners mentioned in Luke chapter 10, which ought to cause you to wonder, why in the world did we start here? Well, that's a good question. And here's the answer. The answer is, we started here because Jesus asks two questions in Luke chapter 10, verse 26, that are the primary questions that sit at the root of pretty much every theological dispute or wrangling that ever happens. And how one answers these two questions will pretty much define what you ultimately believe and define how you ultimately behave. Perhaps you missed it, so let's go back and review. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So understand the context of the story. This is a theologian. This is an expert in the law, and he's testing Jesus regarding the inheriting of eternal life. Now, the question itself, on its face, appears to be a practical question. And I even grant you that in a sense it is a practical question. However, it is a practical question based upon a theological foundation that contains at least two major assumptions. Now, for the record, nearly all so-called practical questions of a theological nature always rest on massive theological assumptions. So don't let anybody fool you and come along and say, I'm just asking a practical question. Really? What lies behind your practical question? 
So in the case of this particular seemingly practical question, there are two big theological assumptions. Number one, the assumption that eternal life is a real thing. You wouldn't ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life if you didn't assume it was a real thing? That's a pretty big theological assumption, isn't it? And secondly, the second assumption, that eternal life comes as an inheritance to someone who does the right things. Do you see the assumptions? Inherent in the seemingly practical question. Now, this expert is asking this question with the intention of testing Jesus, and it seems he already has the answer in mind, and Jesus is very wise in encounters like this. He doesn't take the bait. He draws the answer out, doesn't he? Now, notice this next verse. Verse 26 is how Jesus draws it out. And this is a key verse for us, I believe, for in it Jesus asks two very important questions. We need to learn these questions and know how to answer them. Luke 10, verse 26. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Now, on the face of it, you might think this is really just one question. And indeed, wouldn't it be wonderful if it was just one question? But alas, as much as we might wish these two questions were one, and as much as many will imply that the two questions are one, these are actually two very different questions that make the point very well. Just because we're reading the same words doesn't guarantee that we're discerning the same meaning. And this can be a problem for us, especially if what we're discerning is wrong. This potential disconnect between agreeing on the text but not agreeing upon its meaning is in fact the point that's taking place in this account, encounter. A fact that's verified in the next three verses, though in two separate steps. So verse 27, he answered, this is the expert, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So now they have addressed the first part of what Jesus said, what is written in the law. And what has happened here is we have discovered that the expert and Jesus agree on which portion of the law is pertinent in this situation. They have agreed on the text. However, notice now how the second part of Jesus' question comes into play. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We've agreed on what is written, but now the question is, how readest thou? And this is the question that sparks Jesus to tell the Good Samaritan story, which builds to Jesus' ultimate question that then establishes the true meaning of what the second great commandment is saying. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So there is no debate between Jesus and the expert as to which text is important to the discussion. But there is disagreement about what it means. 
Now, a couple points. When it comes to life in general, there is no such thing as a merely practical question because all questions and all answers are based upon one's underlying assumptions about life itself. If that seems a little distant, let me give you an example. Have you ever heard these words? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You've heard those words, right? That's probably a little bit of a paraphrase, but you've heard those words. So this notion that everyone has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is based on a philosophical assumption centered in the belief that all men are created equal, which was absolutely true for you when these words were written, unless, of course, you were of a non-European race. How readest thou, right? which just goes to show all the more what you do in practice is based more on how you read than it is upon what is written. Which is probably a good reference for Black History Month, don't you think? We haven't always read it the same way, have we? And this, of course, is Jesus' point in the Good Samaritan story. And just as this point is easily proven in life, so also is it easily proven in all things theological and therefore in pretty much everything about how we live our lives and how we live our lives of faith. In the story of the Good Samaritan, there was no disagreement about what words constituted the relevant text. But the question the expert asked was, who is my neighbor? What does it mean? All practical advice is based upon philosophical assumptions, just as all spiritual advice is based upon theological assumptions, which may be true or not true. So when someone comes to you with a load of practical advice, do you just take it? Or do you look for what the assumptions driving it might be? In addition, the person giving the advice may or might not actually know the assumptions that drive their advice and may even falsely attribute that advice to a source where it doesn't even exist. The classic example, God helps those who help themselves. It's a great maxim, right? It's not in the Bible. That's one that even gets misattributed to where it comes from. Therefore, we should always be cautious of what we are blindly accepting, particularly those things that are masquerading as nothing more than practical advice. Because all so-called practical advice is based on some kind of philosophy or some kind of theology, and sometimes it's based on things with which we can't agree. It happens to us all the time. We're bombarded by this. I'll give you a couple examples. Movies. 
Every movie has an underlying philosophy that drives the storyline. And you can get caught up in the practical story without understanding the philosophy that drives the conclusions. Music, songs are full of philosophies and even theologies. And they're catchy. And they get in our head and we sing them again and again without even knowing sometimes what's underneath it. How about this one? News sources. Right or left. Tons of underlying philosophies feeding into our minds under the guise of transparent telling of news. Luke 10, 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? Now, I don't know for sure exactly why I felt inclined to mention all of this today. Maybe it's the times in which we're living. Perhaps it's because my mind works in strange ways and I love nothing more than sharing strangeness. So, there's that. Or perhaps, perhaps it's this. Pastor Bernie found another text in Song of Solomon that mentions banners and I'm trying as hard as I can to not get to it. Maybe that's what it is. I'm doing pretty well so far, right? We haven't even mentioned that book. And since I'm stalling, perhaps you have wondered in the past how we put these worship services together. Well, I had a text exchange with Pastor Evan this week that I think pretty well lays it out, so I thought I'd share it with you today. Patty's got this. She can put it on the screen. You probably can't read it, so I'm going to read it to you. But just so you know, the the high-level conversation that goes on. So Pastor Evan texted me, so where are you heading with this week's text? This chapter is really erotic, he said uncomfortably. So I said this, I'm going to spend some time talking about the history of interpretation of Song of Solomon and then show what you get with different approaches and try to land somewhere meaningful where Jesus is our banner and we love each other. The details are still sketchy. So I kind of knew where we wanted to go. So he said, thanks, that's a good start. Good luck with this one. I said, I will need that, and prayers, I think. I can always just blame Bernie. He said, I have a couple of song ideas. Those might help focus the topic, and yes, we can always blame Bernie. I said, good, I welcome the ideas. Also, we have Barb's kids. Now, was that not the cutest thing ever? That was wonderful. To which he gave the thumbs up and said, need to be careful with children in the room. And I said, Ann Patty, she may be the most fragile. He said, you got that right. Make her put all those verses on the screen. And I said, the thought amuses me. And then, unfortunately, Patty saw us and we got in trouble <laughs> for that. So, so that gives you a sense of how we put these things together, and I think it probably also gives you a sense of how you need to pray for us going forward. <laughs> but back to the earlier comment I made in the midst of that interaction that you might not have noticed, but I want you to think about what I said. I said this, I'm going to spend some time talking about the history of interpretation of Song of Solomon, and then show what you get with different approaches and then try to land somewhere meaningful where Jesus is our banner and we love each other. 
Are you comfortable with that? Is the only thing I have to do is somehow try to get from the text to my point? That's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Here's a little secret. Preachers have been doing that to you your whole life. They started with a point. They found a text and then somehow finagled their way to it. Luke 10, 26, what is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? So if I can find a way from a text in Song of Solomon to end with Jesus as our banner and encourage you all to love one another, that conclusion, I think you would have to admit, would not be a bad conclusion in and of itself because you know you're supposed to love one another, right? And I've spent multiple weeks making the point that Jesus is our banner, so that conclusion is not false. But does it follow from the text? What would I have to do with the actual text of Scripture to get us to that point? And how important are the actual words written to what I tell you they mean? Now, ironically, in general, I think you would almost always want to insist that I stay true to the literal meaning of the words. Yet, today, you might prefer I don't. So, without further ado, I give you Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. There's the banner. That's why we're here. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, if you want to hear a really good literal sermon on this passage, listen to what Pastor Bernie did today at the 10 o'clock service. And as I mentioned a couple weeks back, when we considered a passage from chapter 8 of this same book, we don't do many sermons from the Song of Solomon. And that is mostly because, based on our normal way of interpreting the text, which is generally to be as literal as we can be, we just don't know what to do with it. Or at least we just don't know what to do with it in church. But this, interestingly, has not always been the case. In fact, 1,000 to 1,500 years ago, Song of Solomon was, in many ways, the go-to book in the Bible. Quoting from author Gerald Gray in a book called Biblical Interpretation, he writes, No book of the Bible received more attention during the Middle Ages than the Song of Songs. From the time of Hippolytus... 
around the year 200 to that of Luther, there were at least 64 commentaries on the book, of which 45 date from after the year 800. Virtually every major biblical expositor had something to say about this work. No book of the Bible, with the possible exception of Revelation, has had so many divergent interpretations put upon it. From the rabbis who thought it was a saga of God's dealing with Israel to those modern interpreters who see it as a treatise on women's liberation, almost every imaginable possibility has been canvassed at some time or another. Within this welter of variety, however, two basic modes of interpretation stand out, the literal and the allegorical. Before the advent of modern criticism, the literal interpretation was so rare as to cause scandal when it appeared. The only Christian writer of note to have adopted it was Theodore of Mopsuestia, and his work was conveniently lost. Allegory ruled the field in both Jewish and Christian interpretation, and so it remained until the first part of the 19th century. So to give you an example of how key this book used to be, Bernard of Clairvaux, who was credited with writing the text for at least two of our hymns in our hymnal, and in fact, the hymn we're going to sing at the close today, Jesus, the very thought of thee, he once set about to preach a series of sermons on the Song of Solomon. And 86 sermons and 600 pages later, St. Bernard seems to have abandoned the task because after all that work, he'd only gotten to chapter 3, verse 1. He wrote eight sermons on Song of Solomon 1, verse 2 alone, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You want me to do eight sermons on that? How did he do it? It was done by the use of allegory, the assumption that the literal words have a much deeper, much more profound spiritual meaning. Now, in general, in our day, we are hostile to allegory, and with good reason. For in truth, allegory is taking the literal words and ascribing to them non-literal meanings, an act that isn't necessarily automatically wrong, but it is an act that is fraught with peril, isn't it? Because when I do that, what I'm doing is taking what I already think and putting it into the words. And therefore, we try to take what we understand to be a more respectful and humble approach to the Scripture, allowing the Scripture to tell us what it is saying, rather than us imposing upon it what we already believe. And we pretty much do that most of the time except those times when the literal confuses us or when the literal makes us uncomfortable. Back to Bray. Furthermore, it must be said that allegorical interpretations of this book are the only ones which have had much success in the life of the church. Even in our own anti-allegorical age, this is still true, as can be seen from Song of Solomon 2, verse 4. That's our text for the day. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. In the original context, it appears that what the author had in mind was a night of amorous bliss, followed by a round of heavy drinking. 
But no modern congregation singing the chorus based on these words ever thinks that. None of you were thinking that when these kids were singing, were you? None of you were. To us, it is obvious that here we have Christ taking us into his church and feeding us with his spiritual food and drink in holy communion. Scholars may protest all they like, but for most Christians, the traditional interpretation resurfaces almost without asking, and the literal sense is completely ignored. Did you know you did that? You did it right here today. And this should give us pause. On the one hand, it seems anything but a literal approach is presumptive. But on the other hand, if literal is the only interpretive tool in our toolkit, what might we be missing from the Bible? One more time with Bray. The modern tendency to regard Proverbs as a collection of useful but rather boring advice, Ecclesiastes is the work of a jaded humanist, and the Song of Songs as a piece of erotica shows how little the wisdom tradition is understood or appreciated nowadays in sharp contrast to earlier times when these three books were regarded as among the choicest in the whole of Scripture. Literal interpretation has removed these books from everyday church use and they have almost ceased to be a part of the canon for all practical purposes. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, and the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. What do you think it means? Is this young love between two lovers though in truth of a form that might not suit our present-day morality? Is this the unfailing love of Jesus for the church? Or maybe it's even more personal. Is this Jesus calling you to arise? Come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. What does it mean? Let me at least make this statement. I am by nature and preference and training primarily a literalist when it comes to biblical interpretation. Yet, I have for years been nagged by a question regarding my approach to Scripture. And here's what that question is. Can any singular approach to Scripture whose net result is to render a portion of Scripture largely irrelevant, because this is what the literalist tradition has done to the wisdom literature, 
Can any singular approach to Scripture that renders a portion of Scripture largely irrelevant truly be the only valid approach? If my approach is taking a portion of the Bible out of my hands, is my approach really all that good? Or maybe said better, is it complete? Luke 10, 26. What is written in the law? Well, we've read what's written. How do you read it? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. How do you read it? I sure like the idea that this is a message to me from Jesus. And in truth, it isn't such a huge stretch to say that. I mean, after all, Jesus did say, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, right? He is our banner. And didn't Jesus also say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest? And then we have this in Revelation, right? Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper. Invited to the banquet? Invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. So maybe it isn't such a stretch, is it? Maybe God's love for us can be compared to a love story even if it's a sad love story, as in the case of Hosea. And while I don't want you to walk away today saying, Pastor Jeff told us to use allegory to interpret the Bible, neither do I want you to leave doubting that God can use his word to touch our lives any way he chooses. And if today the Spirit has warmed your hearts, with the words of his invitation to the banqueting table, far be it from me to tell you you have heard wrong. I am truly thankful for what the rationalists have done regarding doctrine and biblical interpretation and respect for the literal sense of Scripture. And the approach greatly suits my over-intellectualizing mind. But here's the question. Are we too much head and too little heart? Is there more that the Spirit is saying to the churches? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we leave the conclusion to you, and we confess our incomplete understanding and apologize for any time we haven't taken your word literally and apologize for any time we've limited your word to what we can literally understand. I pray, Lord, that we will be humble before your word and that we will listen for your spirit when we read. And if you want to slip in words of encouragement to us in a place we might not literally find them, help us to be open to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.